Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by post-it notes at the moment as I'm planning and plotting the final stages of the Two-Headed Serpent campaign that I've been running for patrons pulled out the hat since April 2018. Before each monthly session, I like to read through the chapter that I'm about to run and then pull out the pertinent bits as bullet points on a post-it note. Then put index tabs on the relevant pages, pull out the plot points, noting the defining characteristics of an NPC, the objectives of the session, some uh, useful adjectives, some extra NPC names in case I need them. Because pre-written means rewritten, doesn't it? Reconfiguring the scenario to fit your own personal requirements. The Two-Headed Serpent campaign was the first full one that was done for Pulp Cthulhu and was written by Scott Dorwood, Matt Sanderson and this episode's guest, Paul Fricker. They're also the hosts of the podcast The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, which is about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. We're reaching the climax of the Two-Headed Serpent campaign and it's been a really fun ride with thrills, twists and turns all done in a breakneck pace. A pulpy pace. Pulp. Hmm. Like all hobbies, we like to debate the definitions. We become obsessed with the taxonomy, trying to define precisely uh, what makes old school, for example, distinct from indie storytelling. The dichotomy between traditional and indie has a lot of value judgments attached to it. Gamers thrashing out the relative merits of different approaches. There's fierce tribal differences when ultimately it just boils down to I like what I like. Into the fray comes this term, pulp. Some of the games that emerged in the 90s through to the early noughties use the term from literature to describe their mechanical style. Spirit of the Century, one of the earliest iterations of Fudge, and then later Fate, for example. Also, Savage Worlds. Not only were they pulp settings, which earlier games such as Justice Inc. and Daredevil tried to replicate, but they were also pulpy in approach. Later in this episode, Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, joins me in the room of role-playing rambling and we attempt to understand what makes pulp pulp. I'm going to manage your expectations by saying we fail miserably. Don't worry, because the real meat of this Veganuary 2020 episode is the interview with Paul Fricker that was recorded at Grog Meet 2019 in November. We talk about his formative years in gaming and how he worked on the 7th edition of Call of Cthulhu, as well as some of the other projects he's known for. In the middle, 
there's another first, last and everything from a member of the Grog Squad. This time it's a contribution from the stalwart of the UK convention scene, Lee Williams, or Mothrite on Twitter. There's some interesting choices as he reveals the first game he bought, the last game that he's been interested in, and the game that means everything to him. I'll be back at the end with the usual bobbins. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is Grog Meep. Where we played and taught bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. Uh, we're coming live from Manchester in Fanboy 3, uh, who have been the host for this year's event, and they've been very good, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. And you can uh, hear that I'm completely and utterly surrounded by the Grog Squad. Hooray! On my uh, left is the designer of Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition, core designer and developer of an award-winning supplement for the game and a good friend of Jackson Elias, because one of the hosts of the podcast. He's also a potter. He does pottery. You've got Paul Fricker. That's right, isn't it? You do pottery. I thought you were going to say that's right on Paul Fricker. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do do some pottery, Dirk. Yes, indeed. Yeah. 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 And can I say what a pleasure it is to be here and an honour to be invited to oh, be uh, you on your welcome. show? What I should have done, I should have got a wheel, shouldn't I? You could have. Oh, t- like an intermission. We could yeah. have done the. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, it, you could have sat behind. Me. Yeah, like. Yeah. yeah. Like Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do that later. We'll, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll toss we'll a get, pot later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, I've also uh, on my on my right I've got the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. Uh, it's the portable version. I didn't mean that'd be weird, wouldn't it? This is the portable version. So uh, Paul, I'm going to invite you to just give it a tap. Oh well. That's- this is this is the greatest honour of the day. Right? Can I just give it a little? There we go. Let's see what what the eternal champion appears as. Oh, it's Carla from uh, <laughs> Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter. Because <laughs> uh, we're going to talk horror today, so let's put that there. So the way that this is going to work, we're going to do the normal sections of the podcast. So we're going to go open box where we uh, look backwards to look forwards. Yeah. And uh, for once, for one uh, podcast only, I've sacked Judge Blythe. Yeah, he's, he's for, no, the re- <laughs> for the record, he's just bought Dirk a coffee. <laughs> Tea boy, yeah. Thank you. I've got some grapes. Can you just prepare them? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've sacked Judge Blythe. We brought in a locum, Judge Fricker. Welcome, yeah. Judge. So. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box. It's a part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. And I've got Paul Fricker with me here today. Hello there, Paul. Good morning, Dirk. Okay. So, what we always ask, what we always start. Mm. How did you get into role playing games? I think I should start this by saying I think you know I'm honoured to be asked this question. Everybody in this room has probably got their own story. Yeah. I'm not sure mine is any more interesting. Everybody's story is interesting, perhaps. 
And and having listened to Baz on what would the smart party do? Sorry mm. to mention another show on your. Yeah, I don't, don't recognise what is that? You, you can edit that out. <laughs> is that a podcast? That, I don't know. <laughs> but it was interesting listening to him talk about how he began, and it, it you know kind of made me think about where I began. So as a kid, I used to love playing board games, and I've I've got several siblings, but they're all considerably older than me. So yeah. you know, I was always bugging them to play games. And the only time people would want to play games was like Christmas afternoon and play Monopoly. So mm. I'd be like wandering around bugging people, is, is the impression I get. <laughs> and uh, I had this game called Orbit, this little uh, like board game. It was like, I don't know, the planets going around the sun. I can't remember what, what happened. But then my dad was a farmer. And one day, I don't know if anybody else remembers this game, if you've got a farming background. I think that's the only chance you've got of, of knowing this game. And it was called Agrihazard. <laughs> and it was Monopoly, but a farming version. So rather than buying houses and hotels, you got like tractors, little red tractors. Oh. And you went around the board, and there were all these fields and farms and things. I think it was just produced by like the agricultural suppliers. Or so is it like, like a form of programming, programming for future generations of farmers? Indoctrination. So that, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I used to love that. That was marvellous. Yeah. yeah. It didn't go down with... Well, uh, Later on, I was playing, you know, when I was like in sixth form, I was going out to the pub and we'd come home and we'd play Kingmaker till the early hours. And mm. one day I came out with Agrihazard. <laughs> what the hell's this? That <laughs> didn't happen again. <laughs> so do you still have uh, Agrihazard in, in oh, your house? It's probably in my mum's place somewhere. I should yeah. rescue it. Yeah. 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 We can, you know, have a, get it out next time. Yeah, we have a game of Agrihazard. Yeah. You like looking at old games, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was... Uh, at, at school, and my mate Phil, uh, he said to me, do you want to play this game called Dungeons & Dragons? It's at the War Games Club on a Friday evening in the school canteen. And I'm like, all I heard was, do you want to play a game? So I'm like, yeah, all right. So we go along. And we're like lowly third formers, so like 13 or something. And there's all these sick formers around the table. And they're like playing this game with little figures and, and everything. And... The, weirdly, the DM has got this assistant who does the NPCs, which oh, I don't think yeah. I've ever encountered anywhere else. <laughs> but like, that was the done thing. And they said to me, I said, they said uh, do you know what Dungeons & Dragons is? No. Have you read Lord of the Rings? No. I've seen the Ralph Bakshi film, though. Right, that's it. Yeah. So that was D&D to me. And also notably, I think there were maybe like five or six players, and two of them were women, oh, wow. which at that time, I think, yeah. was fairly unusual. I mean, you hear a lot about, you know, how what a male-dominated hobby it, yeah. it was and still is to a degree. Um, but, yeah, so but probably in my 13-year-old mind, I, looking back, I wonder if part of the attraction was this was a way to meet girls. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm probably in the minority there. <laughs> yeah. um, and... Uh, yeah, I remember two of the characters, Proxima Tridentist. Ah. Oh. They had great... Uh, and we've, we've since figured out that meant approximately three teeth in Latin. Ah. <laughs> and another one was Starkas Nardvik, who was like a wizard, but just went around the dungeon naked. <laughs> so to my 13-year-old mind, this was, this was just like magic. And we just... Me and Phil just sat in. I mean, I don't know what they thought of us. We sat in for like a week, I think. And then the next week, oh, I've got something to show you, actually. Can I just yeah, go yeah, to my bag? Yeah, of course you can. Of course you can. 
Like any good uh, Call of Cthulhu GM, I've bought some uh, handouts. Handouts. <laughs> oh, this is a first, isn't it? Look at this. Week two, they said, right, well, you, you, know, you bugger off and start your own gang, because we don't want you cramping our style. So this was what they gave. This was one of the sheets they gave us. Yeah, testing your eyesight at the back. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, Druids and uh, Magic Users. Spell list from the player's handbook, AD&D. But we didn't have the spell description. Yeah. They just gave us the list of spells. So like, level one, burning hands. I wonder what that does. Well, yeah. you probably go like that and you shoot fire out and it does like tons of damage, which yeah. is kind of what it does. But it did a lot more damage in our version. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was these weird photocopies. They're like shiny yeah. and like waxy. So yeah. this is like, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls to me. This is, I've got these like locked we, away at home. It's we the used to put, they've been out of my house. We used to do uh, gangbusters character sheets on this. And you'd be, if you rubbed it hard enough, it'd come off. You yeah. didn't need a rubber. <laughs> yeah. That uh, Rosetta yeah. Stone, you extrapolated the rules. We did, yeah. We kind of divined, combined with what they'd done at the table and some, you know, random bits of photocopies from AD&D books. We kind of made our own game. I'm not quite sure how that worked, but... And how did the handover work with the uh, NPC? So, okay, there's a bugbear in the room, and then there's a person on the... Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm not sure how that worked. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really get to witness that for long, but, you know... And we didn't try to emulate that either, I don't think. No. We, we just, my mate Phil took charge of running the game, because he seemed to have the best handle on it. I think maybe he'd been on, in on a session before I had. And, uh, you know, he, and, and as soon as... I'm sure we all had that same experience when you're young... And you've got your character, and the first time like an orc comes out, you don't know it's an orc. It's a monster, and you're like, it's very exciting. It's uh, you know because you just don't know what it is. You haven't got those categories of you know hit points and armor class all in your mind yet. So it's just uh, imagination, really. Yeah, yeah. And so, how long was we doing that for before uh, you, you moved on to other things? Uh, well, we had the school club, and quite quickly, I guess that group of sick formers must have been in up sixth and they must have left the school and quite quickly we were like the the group so there was just us meeting with some of our friends and it used to be the war games club so i used to say to people we did war games because that sounded like uh, more serious yes i didn't know how to explain to people we did dnd because people either they didn't know what it was or they thought it was just silly people sitting around rolling dice and you know that's not that's not the case at all (laughs) Um, so um but that yeah, we, we started buying games for the club. We got some funding from somewhere and we'd buy like Star Frontiers and Warhammer Box Set and James Bond and, and all these various games and they'd get locked away in this cupboard at school right. um, and yeah. get them out on a Friday evening. That was the magic time in the school, you know, in the school canteen every Friday. I think that was something, talking to some of my friends, that was kind of what got them through those years really was the, you know, the yeah. role playing and the going to the, the club on a Friday. That was a, a big part of school life. So what part of the country is this? Uh, so it's Buckingham, which right. is near Milton Keynes. Um, and uh, funnily enough, it's the same school my wife now teaches at. Ah. So occasionally I go into, you know, see her for some reason at school and I just like pop along to the school canteen. A lot of it's kind of changed, but that space where that first table was is still there. Oh, yeah. So I went in the other week and uh, I thought, you know, get a picture of that but yeah. there were some people doing stuff and I thought this is yeah. going to look weird yeah. I tried to start taking pictures all kinds of alarm bells going yeah. off around the school yeah. 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 <laughs> so I didn't do, didn't do that but I'll do it another time when there's nobody there yeah. Yeah. yeah so 
how did you uh, graduate from playing to uh, GMing? And which, which did you prefer then? I think it was a mixture. I don't know if I had a preference. I think we, we, we would take it in turns to to GM and play. Because it was a club at school, there was quite a few people. I'd say there was a circle of about a dozen people, so there'd be a couple of games going on. Um, and uh, a friend of, there was a friend of mine who lived like on my walk home. He had a house. His house was on that walk home. So quite often I'd call in at his house. And in his dining room, he had this round table. And the two of us would just roll up characters from the AD&D Players Handbook. And that was our arena. Right. And we'd have fights. And the survivor would get to, you know, spend some more. They'd get a reward and they'd get to spend some more GP. And then we'd have another. That was, that was great. But, I mean, it's not yeah. really D&D, but it was very fun. I think it wasn't until later that when I had less people to draw on that I became more often the games master. Yeah. 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 And also I remember going to like Games Day and Dragon Meat down in London because that was only a short train journey for me. Yeah. So uh, we used to go down there. But I don't remember playing a lot of other role-playing games until I went to college and a friend ran Stalking the Night Fantastic, which was probably the first horror-based game that I actually played. I was living in Plymouth uh, with that same friend, Phil, who had introduced me to D&D some years before, and he was uh, raving on to me about Call of Cthulhu. And I'd seen Call of Cthulhu in White Dwarf, of course, but didn't really get what it was. And he lent me his copy of a Lovecraft book and said, you know, read one of these. So I read Pickman's Model. And often I read Lovecraft now and it's not really, I don't really find it scary. But then reading that, yeah, I was quite, I found that quite chilling reading that in the dark. And then I went down the game shop and picked up a secondhand copy of like the Games Workshop Call of Cthulhu box set, which I noticed the other day they had up here on the shelf, the exact same yeah, thing. yeah. And that got the uh, Cthulhu Companion and various things all in it. And I ran a uh, paper chase for my mate Phil, just him and me. I, I ran it one afternoon and uh, kind of hooked from then, really. And so were you, uh, so obviously on your podcast you cover uh, books and uh, films about horror. So were you an avid horror reader? You know, when I, when I talked to Mike, Mike Mason, he, he was a, a big reader and he was into all the fiction and was reading it from quite an early age. I wasn't reading that stuff. I was reading fantasy and, and, and so on. Um, what I did have was a kind of an affection for horror films, not an aficionado by any means, but when I was about six, I uh, was watching this film and it terrified me. Because my older siblings were watching it, because like I say, they were quite a bit older than me. And, and this film traumatised me for quite a while. It was called Carry On Screaming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That finger they get off... Uh, uh, I've got you, I've got you. Yeah, that, yeah. 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 sleep for nights after that. Because yeah. the horror films did bloody terrify me. Yeah. And I think when I was 15, I went, you know, we, we snuck down to the local cinema to go and see our first ex-certificate, when it was proper, you know, ex-certificate. And that was Mad Max 1 and 2. Yeah. And then soon after that, my mates were like, do you want to go and see another double bill? That was another good thing back in the day, it was double bills. Yeah. And it was uh, Friday the 13th, part 1 and 2. Mm. And in my ignorance, I didn't realise they were horror films. Ah, right. And again, <laughs> I enjoyed them, but yeah, I was terrified. Because <laughs> um, i got friends. Uh, you know, Scott always sort of says how uh, he enjoys horror films, but they don't frighten him. 
And I'm yeah. like, well, why do you watch them? Yeah. <laughs> when did you start turning it into uh, writing? Oh, another handout. Oh, you got another handout? Yes. We're perhaps jumping ahead here to, to your love of fanzines. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. But here I've got a copy of Demon's Drawl. Oh, yeah. look at that. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I yes, am, yeah. yes. And on, uh, I've got it written here, on page 14. So this was early, this is jumping back to school, which is yeah. why I bring this up. But this was the first thing I had published. And I'll show oh. you this. this. This may, it's an illustration which has got quite deep meaning and may well, you know, change your perspective, especially as it's Sunday morning with, you know, religious things in mind. Yeah. Check that out, look. No, okay. If anybody's triggered by this, yeah. I'm not taking responsibility. <laughs> what kind of mind produces that? <laughs> yeah. so, it's got quite a deep meaning, I think. <laughs> yeah, it? it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Who would have thought, like, a 13 or 14-year-old could come up with that idea of a, a guy in the middle being, like, pulled up by an angel and pulled down by the, the devil? Yeah, yeah. And in the background, like, is this, this is heartbeat on the machine. You were listening to a lot of Marillion around this time as well, weren't you? <laughs> Do you know what? Yeah, yeah I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a deeper meaning there. Yeah. You hear of these people, I hear of these people saying, uh, you know, like in Desert Island Discs, and they say, uh, you know, what, what, what made you uh, become like a world-famous pianist or something? Oh, you know, I started when I was three, and I've always, I knew from that, I was like, knew from four years old that that's what all I was ever going to do. Mm-hmm. And I think, I never knew that. I never knew that I wanted to do anything. Yeah. Um, but now I look back, and... Uh, I was doing things like that, and I, I was looking through some old papers when we moved house a few years ago. Uh, White Dwarf had a scenario competition, and I'd got one I'd typed up while I was at school, The Legend of the Five Wards or something like that, and it's, you know, it's all very cliched. Uh, but I, I've still got that. <laughs> but the other thing that, that brought this home to me was uh, at uh, my 25th wedding anniversary the other year. Each year we had our wedding anniversary, we would write a little letter to ourselves to read the next year. Just sort oh. of say, over the next year, we hope you do this. Oh, and, lovely, you know, your hopes and dreams and all that. And, of course, we didn't do it every year, but, you know, there was quite a few of them. So, I, again, looking through those papers, I found these letters. We hadn't written one for quite a few years. So I thought, well, that would be nice. So been out for dinner and had some cocktails and sat in this little room reading through these letters to each other. And the thing that struck me, almost every letter I wrote said, I hope you're doing your writing, Paul. I hope you've got something published. I hope you're still writing for role-playing games. And that was like in every one of them that I wrote. And yet I, I didn't know that that was, I was so uh, motivated to do it, really. But obviously the past me was... yeah. Telling you, encouraging you. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of wish that I'd realised that I felt so passionate about it at the time. But I think I, I kind of felt like that's something other people do. Mm. And I remember in your podcast a few episodes back, you were talking about games that you look at and you think, that's not for me. Mm. And that's something for other people, you know, particular role-playing games. And I think I've been guilty of that. I've, I've looked at things in life and thought, you know, that that band or that game or that thing, that's that's for the other group. That's not for me because I'm not part of that group. And, you know, don't do that. <laughs> there are exceptions, though, aren't there? Yeah. Right? M- Mrs. Brown's Boys is not for me. 
you got to open your mind, Dan. Open your mind. You, you, you had this ambition and uh, you obviously had uh, form for it as well, didn't you, in Demon's Drawl. So how did, uh, how did the writing... So I think I had... Um, I wrote an article for... that went into Valkyrie in the kind of mid to late 90s in the Valkyrie uh, RPG magazine. Um, and then, and then of course, I started going to conventions in the late 90s. Conventions were something that... I didn't know about because I didn't have the internet until like mid to late nineties, and my gaming group was was you know really small. It was a group of people we'd meet every weekend and we'd play like Ars Magica and Middle Earth role playing game and Werewolf Vampire things like that. But we were very isolated, probably as most role players were. You know, there were magazines. There was Arcane and things like that. A bit later, but I didn't know that like Gen Con and, and whatever were going on. Didn't know about them because I didn't go to any game shops. We didn't have any local game shops. So, but later in the 90s, friends would sort of say, oh, you know, there's, there's Gen Con at Leicester. And I'm like, is that? Okay. Because I'd been to some cons back in the mid 80s, but, you know, time had passed. And going to that, that was how I ended up meeting Mike, Mike Mason. Um, and he, I can't quite remember how we first met I think it was through like Eurolog were running games at various conventions like Battlemasters and uh, Gen Con and ended up meeting Mike and he invited me to join his Cult of Keepers the process there was if you wanted to GM he had to write a scenario and send it in to Mike and he would choose like some of the scenarios so I would run mine and I would run someone else's. And that was the discipline. Everybody in the group had to run their own. And they had to run one of somebody else's that Mike would give them. You know, that obviously these aren't like published scenarios. These are, you know, something somebody's written a few pages of. So you get it and you're like, maybe that's great. Or maybe I don't really get what's going on here. And you, you know, you talk to the other person who's written it or whatever. But also there was a strong motivation there. I felt this has got to be good enough that Mike's going to say, yes, we're going to use it. So I put a lot of effort into those scenarios to make sure that... Because I wanted to run my scenario. Um, so I think that was a quite a learning process for me of not just writing scenarios for me to use, but writing scenarios for other people to use in that group. Mm. And also seeing how um, other people would run your scenario differently. Mm. particularly when it came to Gatsby and the Great Race, where um, it was the same scenario run simultaneously by three other GMs, three other keepers. Because there was some overlap, you'd get feedback. I, I was taking the whole of the first hour to do to do the sort of setup, and it was quite relaxed. And, but I found there was plenty of stuff to do. And the other keepers were like, what the hell are you doing in the hour? And some of them were like getting through that content really quick because their play style was really fast-paced. That you know that that was helpful in in learning how you know different people approach the same thing very differently, and we were fortunate to have like the head of Chaosium at that convention as a guest where we ran that game. You know we're all sat around in the morning having a coffee in the in the bar, and Mike comes over and says, "Oh Paul, I've got Charlie head of Chaosium. He's going to join us and play the game." And oh, I was just spat my coffee out. You know? I was like, Bloody hell! As if I'm not stressed enough already. It's the first time we've run this game. It's going to be for 24 people. I'm the one who's written it. The other keepers have like read my version of it. 
so it's all kind of on my shoulders, and now, you know, yeah. head of Chaosium's in the game. So, yeah, that was a, that was a bit nerve-wracking. Yeah. Uh, but at the end, Charlie says, oh, you know, do you want to submit that for publication? Mm. Like, well, A, I kind of thought, who's going to want to buy that? Because not many people are going to... Logistically, it's quite difficult to run because you've got to have a big group of players, so it's no good for a home group, maybe. We did a kind of a, you know, a stripped-down version, but... But it was published under the, the Moolah program, the Miskatonic University, um, the monograph program. So that was put out. So that was, I think, the first kind of proper published thing I had. And then um, Mike got some of us together to write scenarios, and he put that together for Cthulhu Britannica oh, yeah, through yeah. Cubicle 7. And that, that was kind of how it developed, really. So it was just getting something and somebody saying, you know, you could maybe put that in for publication. And... Uh, I kind of worked it up, and uh, Scott edited it, uh, and you know, we submitted it. Hello, Grog Squad. Lee Williams here, aka Morthry, off of the social medias, and this is my first, last, and everything. My first RPG was the original Traveller. Three black books in a little black box with a distress call on the front, and it was quite the experience. Um, my only role playing up until then had been with friends doing, I think it was the original basic D&D, but I can't be sure. It was certainly one of those uh, early versions. And Traveller just suited me down to the ground because I was always more about science fiction than fantasy. And the idea of the Third Imperium, thousands of planets, plus various alien races, just everything that you could do with it, travel between them. You didn't even have to be on the planet. That was a common one, the scout ship, for no particular reason. And all those lovely trading rules, which absolutely ensured that you could never pay for your starship if you owned one legitimately. Brilliant. As for the dying in character generation... I don't know anybody who ever actually used to apply that rule. Ah, yes, great times. I remember I got it from a military war games fair in Manchester. I remember, I think it was my 14th birthday, I remember budgering my dad to take me on the Sunday when he wasn't at work. And I saw this thing, which was the box. And I thought, oh, this is different to what I've been playing but it's the same kind of thing and that was it really 40 years ago now shocking now the last or latest thing that I've got into I probably should say Baz Stevens King of Dungeons but I'm afraid it isn't sorry Baz it's Paul Michener's excellent liminal RPG which now I come to think of it uses the similar two D6 basic mechanic as Classic Traveller 40 years later and it's still going it's a game of modern magic but not in the way that games like Unknown Armies do it this is where the real world and the uh, the other side of the veil meet and it's just such a good idea there's so many inspirations for the game. You can't fail 
to think of ideas. My brain has been working overtime since I got the quick start from uh, Dragon Meat last year. So, uh, yeah, I recommend that, and I really should write some stuff down for that, some case notes, as they're called, because just so much, again, that you can do with it. Uh, that's something I've been struggling with just lately, is actually creating anything. But uh, Liminal definitely has potential uh, from my point of view. Uh, also, Paul and Neil and Guy and the other people who've worked on the game are all wonderful people, and I love um, spending time with them at the Garrison conventions in Sheffield, particularly Furnace and Seven Hills. So, definitely recommended. So now we come to the everything portion of this segment, and probably won't be a big surprise to a lot of people who know me, it's GDW's old Dark Conspiracy game. When it first came out in 1991, it just factored into everything else that I was heavily into at the time. Sort of retro look of it. Uh, the cyberpunk, the B-movie elements, and it's a horror game as well. But not like Call of Cthulhu. Because blowing the monster up with big cases of dynamite does actually work most of the time in Dark Conspiracy. Yes, the thing with Dark Conspiracy, as I said, it was just tied into everything else that I was really enjoying at the time. Movies, books, other games, Cyberpunk 2020, for example, and also Cthulhu Now, which was very much Cthulhu then. It's just stuck with me. I've been involved with one revival of the game that, uh, that failed, unfortunately. And it should be coming back quite soon under a new publisher with a completely brand new edition. It will be in print, full colour artwork, all those nice modern things. And yet, I can't help thinking that I could just take the game world, or my version thereof, and run it with another system. I think that might actually give me more focus. If you like a near future horror game, that might be one to look out for. I'm quietly confident, but we shall see. I'll see some of you lovely people at the next thing. Cheers all. So, of course, that led on. So, ultimately, being co-author of uh, 7th edition rules. I think at that time, this was um, early to mid-2000, and I was listening to a lot of podcasts, because I was there in my shed making pots, so in my ears, I've got like Sons of Cryos, uh, Theory from the Closet, uh, a whole bunch of role-playing podcasts, which at that time were very focused on the whole indie games movement. And, and, and at the Milton Keynes Club, we were playing things like My Life of Master and Inspectors and Dogs in the Vineyard and, and all that, that kind of indie games movement was, was very strong there. Most people in that circle were thinking about their own games. I was working on various mechanics and, and I think I was sharing some of those with Mike. I think maybe I was you know, thinking the two of us could work on something together. And, and he said to me, well, why don't we, why don't we rework those ideas and we all approached Chaosium and say, can we do 7th edition? Because mm. it was in his head, because he had worked for Games Workshop previously, so he'd been in publishing, and he knew that he knew about putting a rule book together mm. and publishing. 
Uh, whereas that wouldn't have occurred to me. I was thinking it would be, you know, if I do get round to actually finishing this thing, it'll be a little indie game that, you know, I self-published because that was the kind of thing that I perceived that you do. It, again, it was at one of the conventions in Leicester, Continuum, and we approached Chaosium after a, a seminar. I said, yeah, can we have a word? We sort of ran it past uh, Charlie, and he was like, yeah, yeah, okay. So he gave us the nod. But it's kind of, you know, just a fairly informal agreement. And he's like, well, can you run a, a combat for me so I can see how that's working? Mm-hmm. And we're thinking, yeah. Because <laughs> I got, like, a very sketchy idea, and it was, like, radically different to what came out at the end. It was... It could all be solved in one roll, or you could push it to the next round, or you could push it to the next round. It was, it was very, very, very different compared to what we've got now. And I'm kind of glad that that did. We didn't actually do that play test with him, because yeah. uh, that might have scuppered it. But <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, Mike came down to my place, and we sat on the deck in for a day, and we just went over all the ideas, and you know that. And and Mike kind of sat back then and let me work through the rules and and I'd I'd kind of work stuff up and every now and again I'd send him something and he'd read through it and send me a few comments and then like a week or two later I'd send him something totally different (laughs) say what about this and what about this and he'd sort of filter it but he's got a very good way of um, handling that he doesn't like he's not overly confrontational with it he doesn't pick it to pieces he can see when somebody's working through a process mm-hmm. um so he he kind of we were a partnership but he kind of gave me a lot of space to kind of work through that and said you know this is a stage now where we need to sort of start getting it together and this process took several years and left to my own devices i'm pretty sure i'll probably still be doing it now because <laughs> yeah. i'm just a tinkerer whereas mike is like a finisher he sort of yeah. says right this has got to be done you know, get it together, let's pull these things together, let's nail that down, finish that up, submit it, we're going to get it done by this date. Obviously these things shift a bit, but that's that's his one of his talents of, of coordinating that, whereas, you know, that's not a talent I have. So, <laughs> so, so what we normally do uh, with uh, Judge uh, Blythe, who was Blythe, who can't be with us today, um, <laughs> is we, we pick uh, three uh, roles to look at in some detail, and I'd like to... Have a look at uh, pushing rolls, look, and chase. Yeah. Chapter. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, that yeah, sounds good. Yeah, 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 good. yeah, yeah. A bit more detail. Mm. So let's start with uh, push it. Uh, my, my, one of my favourite salt and pepper songs, actually. <laughs> but um, yeah, pushing, pushing, pushing a roll. Now, when we started doing this, um, we fell into the trap of just treating it as a re-roll. Yes. And. Even now, as you know, I'm playing a, a, a Call of Cthulhu um, game uh, online and still there's that temptation uh, not to work through the consequences of that. So it'd be good to understand how that rule came about and to give some tips for rubbish keepers like me who, uh, so yeah, just roll that again. I think it came about through play. Uh, so... As soon as we had that idea of doing 7th edition, there was myself and Scott and Matt, my co-hosts on the show, and I think Lucy sometimes, another friend, Robin, and we'd get together and we'd play through scenarios that I'd kind of adapted to run with the new rules, the the new rules in 
process. And we had the idea that, I mean, one of the obstacles I felt was you, you've had a go at something like a task, like opening a door, you failed the role, well, you can try again, can't you? Mm-hmm. Why can't you just keep rolling until you do it? So why roll at all? Um, but it's a horror game. So the idea is that, you know, well, the rule is, you know, you've, you've rolled once you've failed, but it's not that you just roll again. It's in the fiction. What are you doing to, what are you doing now? Mm-hmm. You know, well, I, I'm, I'm just going to throw myself at the door without any heed for, for caution and just try to smash it down. Or I'm going to take ages and like, you know, try and pick it and, and this could take as long as it needs so it might be that you spend the rest of the day trying to do this thing but you only get one roll and initially it was that you roll perhaps you fail and then you try again and and, and then you try again and you try again but each time it, it escalated and that was how combat was going to work like I said it was kind of an escalation of, of the situation I don't remember the details but it was multiple times and through play and testing and yeah it, it just became like oh actually let's just make it one roll you know one push mm-hmm. so but it was it was it's always there in the in the play that it was came through the you know the the story at the table what are you doing to get that that pushed roll with the knowledge that it could go wrong hmm. um so I remember one early one was uh, the, the, the group was playing, they were, they, were, they were hunting this like zombie character through the woods and they failed the track roll. They said, can we push it? I said, yeah, I guess, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're going to really take our time and like study the ground for tracks and go along really slowly. So this idea that they're going to sacrifice a lot of time doing this. And thought, okay. And they said, well, what? And I said, well, obviously there could be a consequence if you, if you fail. And I'm like, what could that be? What could that? And they said, well, "What might that consequence be?" And I said, oh, "I don't know. You know, maybe the things up in the tree, and while you're looking at the ground, it'll drop down on you." And they said, "Oh, well, I'm not sure we want to do that." <laughs> and that, to me, was like a sign that well, that rule's working because yes, they could just do that and get another role, but if the fear of uh, the consequences putting them off and making them really worry about making that second role, that's instilling the the horror if you like the the anxiety and the the worry about actually doing that thing so that was the aim really was to to push the the role but to push the horror back at the players i think it's thinking of the level of the consequence Mm. because sometimes uh there's a risk that it just turns into in the fiction like a fumble or Mm. you know or you know you've made a mistake uh by by doing it again well i think Something I try to do is not to have it necessarily directly, directly related to what they're doing. So um, there was another situation where they're trying to persuade a hotel receptionist to tell them some information about who's been checking in and out. And uh, they said, can we push the role? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess so. So, you know, you're going to, you know, that the obvious thing would be they annoy her and she calls security and throws them out or something like that. But then I thought, well, this hotel receptionist just made up on the fly. You know, it's not a statted MPC or anything like that. So I thought, well, actually, maybe in my head, I'm thinking, well, maybe if they fail it, she is associated with those people. She's associated with the cult and she tells them, Yeah. yeah. you know, so 
So they do fail it, and she tells the cult that these guys were asking about you at the uh, you know the other morning in the hotel, and so yeah. word gets back to them that the investigators are after them. So it can be kind of tangential consequences, right? Um, yeah. Or you know, if they're taking too long picking that lock, maybe the the uh, the bad guys roll up, you know, and find that somebody's broken into their house, yeah. you know, whilst they're doing it. So it's it's a way of kind of the GM pushing the horror anywhere in the story really right so really what it's for is um you know is that there's old school thing of screwing over the players at your whim because you're you know you're the all-powerful gm and i don't really like doing that but when they push a role and fail it that's saying to me as the keeper we want you to do you know we give you license to do whatever the hell you want right. really yeah that's a good way of looking at it yeah so that's that's how i see it yeah Let's look at luck, because uh, that's presented as a, an optional rule, isn't it? In, mm. uh, in, in thing. Why, why is that as an optional rule? Why did, why did you... Because of playtester feedback. Right, okay. So we got through um, the drafts and we'd submitted it to Cosium and um, we had uh, like a, a sort of internal feedback within Chaosium with some of the other authors and then we went to a round of... Um, play testing, and we put it out to I can't remember how many, but like you know, a few hundred play testers. And uh, Mike managed that, and you know, we'd send them out, and they get a deadline to send feedback in. And there was quite a bit of concern over the use of luck as a resource to adjust roles. Hmm. Um, so we figured, well, we'd already got this thing of having optional rules in there. So we thought, well, Mike said, well, let's make it an optional rule. I was a little bit less keen, but I could see the argument. Yeah. So, you know, Mike and I, one of the things we said was everything that goes in that book, we're both going to agree on. Mm. Um, so, you know, sometimes that was a process of, you know, debate and compromise on both our parts. Um, but that, that was the bottom line. We were both going to agree on it. And the optional rules, you know, in general, if I can just talk about that for a moment, came about because like writing, say, the combat chapter, say, there's quite a few optional rules at the end of it. And if you incorporate those into the flow of the chapter, I think perhaps it, it makes it seem more complicated than it is. So I was like, well, let's just strip it back to like the core elements and put that in the main chapter. Then all those added bits, put those in a bit at the end. So you can run it with that, just the core chapter, and not worry about all that optional stuff but then it, I hope that it then communicates easier to the reader that they just read that chapter and get it and then the extra bits they can add in if they want yeah. and so luck point luck spending is one of those things yeah because I, I think uh, luck transforms the experience of playing Call of Cthulhu in a good way because it adds to the excitement so, so in Pulp Cthulhu um, for example a crash landing plane um, they had 2% uh, pilot skill. Wow. <laughs> uh, he rolled a, a 15. Why was he, why was he flying? Because <laughs> he was the only one who could get to the uh, cockpit. Uh, he, and, <laughs> and, uh, what happened to the pilot? Uh, he got ripped out of the cockpit by a night gong. Yeah. Well, that's terrible. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. These, these things happen. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, he managed to land the plane. It was a great moment because, and it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have spent the luck. Yeah. Uh, um, but sometimes it's good to get that feeling, isn't it? That I'm nearly there, but I can spend some resource to yeah. do it. Yeah. And again, there is that thing of, do you want to spend the luck? And it's not just a, a meaningless resource. It's something that down the line, I think if you're going to use the luck spending thing, you need to use luck rolls as well. Yeah. Because then later on in the game, they know they're going to be making luck rolls for quite important things. You know, random things that you as keeper decide to put down to a luck roll. And, you know, often it's a group luck roll. And if that player has spent, if Blythe has spent all his luck and he's down to like 13% now, and it comes to a group luck roll, we've got 13% chance of making it. Yeah. So it's the decision again. You know, players, you know, I've seen them like, do you want to spend that luck? And they're like, ooh, you know, I'm not yeah. quite sure. So it's. A, if it becomes a difficult decision, a dilemma, then I think that's a more interesting rule. Yes, yeah. And uh, chases. Mm. And so um, you give a lot of time to uh, chases in, in the rule book. And I think uh, the first Good Friends of Jackson Alliance uh, podcast I had listened to was where you were uh, walking through the chase rules. I think right, the rules right. hadn't been uh, released yet. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was a... a an interesting idea to incorporate it into the uh, robot because it is something that happens in Call of Duty, isn't it? Running away. You yeah. do a lot of running away, don't you? Uh, <laughs> running towards or running uh, from. Um, however, when I've had the rules, I've never been able to make it work. Right. Uh, where am I going wrong? <laughs> I think chase rules are... You know, in all role-playing games, chase rules are a difficult thing to manage. Yeah. Um, so we looked at, at the how chases feature in Call of Cthulhu, and there's a major chase that takes place in the Shadow of Rinsmouth, uh, when um, Olmstead is, like, getting out of the bedroom window and the Deep One's, like, breaking his bedroom door and he's descending to the street and then chasing through the streets. And so that was one of the things we wanted to try and emulate and capture within the game. And... It was a long process of uh, development of many different iterations until we came to that sort of final one. It's basically you 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 set up the the chase sequence of who's in front of who. You know, obviously there's the, the quarry and there's the pursuer, and it's it's down to scene by scene. So. You're just breaking it down into the way I visualise it is like in a film, you see, um, you know, whether it's uh, James Bond or whatever, and there's a stairwell, and you see, you know, James Bond if he's the wrong, he's running away, he crashes in through the, the door and he kind of runs down the steps, and there's somebody coming up the steps with you know, all their shopping, and he has to kind of get past them and maybe jumps over the banisters and down the stairwell. And then the next thing is the baddies chasing him, and you see them doing that same obstacle, so it's kind of like. There's a there's a, a scene there and and you have to make like a dex roll or a jump roll or you know the keeper decides what roll is required for that bit and if you fail it you set back a bit and if you succeed it you're on to the next bit so it's a string of of little basically using the same mechanics that you use in the game mm. but just stringing a bunch of them together is what we're trying to do so yeah. if you make a bunch of good rolls you know you'll get in further ahead. And, you know, when you look over your shoulder, you can't see the pursuers anymore and the chase is over. Yeah. So it's just trying to give a structure to those things that you already use. And how do you manage that at the table then? So would you use counters to demonstrate the 
distance. Yeah, it depends what I've got to hand, but sometimes I've got a piece of paper and I just draw a line and like just put uh, like lines on that line, a bit like a train track, and say, okay, they're on this one, they're on that one, and just put initials, and then as they move along, just rub it out, well, just cross it out and move it along. You yeah. know? So it's it, the idea of the, the locations. The locations are quite abstract. A location is just, you know, that's the stairwell, and then there's the lobby, and then there's the street. Uh, and then, you know, if the lead character decides to run across the street, maybe crossing the street is the next obstacle, the next location. And then they run into the store opposite. That's the next location. So the, the person at the front of the chase is really defining what those future locations are because it could go anywhere. Yeah, you don't know yeah. where that, that person at the front is going to go. So it's quite improvised from that point of view. The keeper isn't dictating that. Yeah, The, the player at the front is dictating that. That's, that's useful because I've got a big chase coming up. I can't, can't reveal much because people in the audience. Yes, oh, right, right, right. Okay, so that's, that's useful. And we normally have a, a fumble, but rather than a fumble, it'd be interesting to know about uh, the combat rules because I know uh, from your uh, discussions on Good Friends of Jackson Alliance that there was a lot of debate over the combat rules and how to manage the combat. Um, and I found that really different in the uh, new rules. The, the fact that you don't get this backwards and forwards and uh, you always get a result uh, in some form or another each, each round. But I believe that you wanted something a little bit more granular, didn't you? Did I? Yeah. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I've got it on record. Have you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Play that for the court. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, I don't know. I, th- I think there was... as. As one of the people that worked on the rules, there were various iterations of it, and it's hard to remember all the various sort of steps we went through. But I think I'm pretty happy with the, the way it's come out. So, I mean, the, the main difference being that, you know, I feel like you can you can either kind of try and dodge and evade the damage and try and sort of get away, or you can kind of engage your attacker, and if they don't attack you very well, you can, you know, you can get a blow back on them as yeah. they're attacking you. Um, so it was to try and sort of emulate that, what I perceive sort of happens in in dueling and, and fighting and so on. Yeah, I think I think um, it was more to do with like the the injuries and. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 So again, this is where play testing came in, and this is it's a combination of as a uh, somebody who's working on the rules, going down a rabbit hole, and developing this thing and developing this thing in isolation, and I've got this chart. Because I'd, I'd played Ars Magica, and in Ars Magica they've got, I think there's fatigue, and there's uh, like actual wounds or stamina. something. Stamina? Wounds and stamina. Yeah. Wounds and stamina. And one is like physical damage, so like cuts and bruises and you know things that you're going to kill you. And the other is fatigue, so it could be you know you're walking all day, so you're down on you know your stamina, you're down on your your fatigue. So it's two tracks. So the the fatigue one can end in unconsciousness and being totally worn out and the like the wounds one can end up in you know blood loss and death and you know they work hand in hand so i was kind of developing something a bit like that for for call of cthulhu so there was one with almost like temporary hit point loss and there was like more longer term hit point loss and various degrees of wound levels and so on and i would got this like natty chart that you could have and you could sort of fill them out and you've got your hit points and then zero and then like down to negative your hit point total and it all made sense to me and I explained <laughs> it to the players and it's clear nobody got a clue how to use it so I was like okay I think we'll, we'll drop that Yeah. because if it's too and this is something Mike was uh, 
you know, hot on. Is that if it's too difficult for your players, if there's somebody in the group that has trouble understanding it, you need to look at it again. Because mm-hmm. it needs to work for everybody and it needs to be something you can communicate relatively straightforwardly. Because, um, uh, you know, it's all very well for the for the person who designed it to understand it or the person who reads the rule book thoroughly to understand it. But the rest of the people around the table have got to get it. Yeah. I am going to erect this uh, Games Master screen in front of you. You got to. It's right here. You can yeah, see can it, can't see you? It. De- it's definitely here. You can't see a thing. And I've got, I've got theatre of the mind dice here, and I'm going to roll on this table apparently at random. Okay. Yeah. And to look at other things, I am shaking these theatre of the mind dice. Am I allowed to see behind the screen? Or <laughs> no, no. Right. These are my secrets. Yeah. Okay. So first up. We've got Dockside Dogs. Oh. Because that's a project that you developed, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was one of those fairly early scenarios for the Cult of Keepers. We ran that at Gen Con in Reading when, uh, it, when it was down at Reading University. And, um, yeah, that was one that took a lot of development. Again, it was when I tend to write a scenario, it tends to be I kind of get a, uh, an idea and then develop it and then kind of realize that's not really working and kind of move it on and rework it so the final product was nothing like what i started off working on um and that i managed to to talk to kozim and get permission to publish that uh but under my own kind of publishing really but because it was for charity uh so i put that out for cancer research and that's still up on drive through now, um, $5.99. And uh, yeah, so and the proceeds from that are still going to charity. And I'm really pleased to say that I think last year, because what happened, well, let me just step back. What happened was a friend of mine in Buckingham said, we're going to do Relay for Life, the cancer charity uh, you know, research thing. And, you know, you walk, walk, walk around the local park for 24 hours, you take it in turns, and you have to do things to raise money. And I'm like, we're like, yeah, that sounds good. What the hell are we going to do? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, she had cake sales and was raising hundreds of pounds on cake sales on a drive. <laughs> I don't know how that... And uh, I thought, well, what I could do was I could put this scenario out. And you know what? During that... Sorry to bring it down here, but during that period of from deciding we were going to do it, like just before Christmas, to the event in the summer, both our dads were, dis- were uh, diagnosed with cancer. Oh. So, uh, so it meant a lot to me to be able to sort of put that out. And, and even last year, something like six or eight years after that initial event, I was able to give Kath a cheque for like, I don't know, it's about £800 yeah. for, the, for the like two years' sales. So, yeah. so it's still selling it's still people are still playing it and i get like um aaron vanek the um film director who's done some uh cthulhu films um with uh, john tynes and so on uh he ran it and he sends me pictures of him running dockside dogs and he's got all these people turning up like in full 1920s no sorry in full in full dress like you know like reservoir dogs, reservoir dogs yeah. and uh, i was thinking of the gatsby one because he ran gatsby in 1920s yeah. dress as well and when people send me these, because when I run these games, 
it's like I've got a few scraps of paper <laughs> and like you know crappy character sheets and if, if it's props it's like something cut out of a Kellogg's cornflake box <laughs> don't turn it over <laughs> and, uh, and then people send me these things like bloody hell it's amazing what they've done with it yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah. Well, it's still out there then yeah, yeah so, so it's still out there so you yeah. know what you all got to do when you get home don't you so, uh, roll on here oh that's a five I'm going to knock it down to a four. And that... A bit of fudging. Yeah. Using my luck. Mm. Pushing my luck. I want to talk about two-headed serpent. And this is my uh, working copy here. Look at this. It's on the go. And we're currently doing this campaign. It's absolutely fantastic, Paul. Well, I'm very pleased to to hear that. Yeah, I'm very proud of the amount of comments we've had on that you know people seem to be really having a good time with it because some projects you put out there and you don't really hear that much back Mm -hmm. um but with two-headed serpent i guess maybe because it's the first pulp campaign so scott was very keen to like put together a campaign for two-headed serpent and um sorry for for pulp cthulhu and we you know matt scott and i were working on on various projects so we just kind of sat down and we said yeah let's put something together and we talked to Mike and we'd kind of got a framework of various chapters and an idea of roughly how long the book would be and Mike you know gives us the go ahead we have some back and forth about you know some of the um, the premise of, of it and some of the chapters and I think one of the things that, that stands out to me having worked on some other campaigns is we work quite closely together because we live we all live you know, in the same proximity. So we meet up in person, you know, to record the show and to, to game and so on and at the local club. So we were able to meet in a cafe in Milton Keynes quite regularly and, you know, spend the day talking through it. And also we were able to, you know, I'd run a chapter. So I'd write Bolivia, the first chapter, and I'd run it and then Scott would run it and then Matt would run it and we'd get feedback from each other. So we were all really working closely together. And as as things went on, We'd sort of say, well, what about that character? You know, mm-hmm. well, maybe maybe that character could be in this chapter and do this thing. And so we'd really bat it around. So it wasn't like I was doing this chapter and it was discreet. And then I know they've got to get the players to this point, And then you're doing the next chapter, which is how sometimes, mm. you know, these, these things work. And there's not that integration. So I think that helped to build a more, hopefully a more cohesive yeah. story. And it's quite a challenge to write a, a campaign like this where um, it, you know that the players, and went through playtesting, um, that there could be different outcomes. So when you get to the point where we're up to, Calcutta, all right. it's, that must have been a challenge to write because all the time you're saying, if this has happened, or if yeah. this has happened in your campaign, if you've aligned with these uh, factions. So how do, how do you get all that together at that point? Yeah, that is a process of saying, putting in options and saying, because there are various major NPCs who the players could side with or they could be enemies. Yeah. Because we didn't want to tie people's hands and say, this is the story, you know, play through it on a on a train track. Uh, so, and some of those things, you know, came to us as we were running it. You know, that guy yeah. could actually be, you know, on their side. So it was a case of writing it and trying to struggle to communicate to the reader those options, really. That, yeah. that, was, that was one of the biggest challenges, I yeah. think, and trying to structure the book 
in such a way that it presented that. Yeah. So hope you know. Hopefully that it that does work because it, you've got um, two uh, chapters which it, uh, many of them are quite discreet, aren't they? They've mm. got links with, with it, but many of them, yes. the, the episodes are quite discreet. Yeah. Uh, but there's a couple of them like New York and Calcutta where things can, can kind of get mixed up, can't they? And have uh, different ways of, of doing. It's not a sandbox because there's plot elements that have to emerge in these places. Yeah. Um, but I really like how this. Uh, adventure handles that i mean new york probably is a bit more of a sandbox if you like i mean it's because you spend between each chapter you're kind of going back to new york to you know to talk to your boss or to you know to have a bit of downtime if you're having character downtime you know in in the kind of investigative development phase or the the hero development phase so you can have a bit of downtime and they can go and visit their relatives or whatever and you know the idea being that's kind of around new york and there are antagonists and so on that they might rub shoulders with. So New York can be kind of done in little bits. Um, and, yeah, and Calcutta, as you're getting towards the end of the campaign, you know, there's there are major players in that chapter that may have been taken out already. Yes, yeah. So, and this is one of the things I find with working on other projects, you know, usually with Matt and Scott, it's like they're writing a chapter and they're saying, or, or one of us is writing a chapter and we're saying, oh, this guy from the earlier chapter is going to do this thing. And I'm like, well, what if that guy died in yeah. chapter two? What if, can, we, can we say that he's definitely going to survive? Whatever? Not really. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't like to, I li- you know, I like to let the players change that, that future story. Mm. Um, I never like it when you have like the, the arch bad guy and he gets away no matter what you do as players. <laughs> it says... The, the bad guy will get away. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit. A bit it, that's what makes it such a great campaign because it it has emerged, you know, through playing. So it's fantastic. Great. Have you I'm played what, um, oh, what is uh, the Dust Bowl one? Yes. That, yeah. That was my favourite chapter, the Oklahoma one. Yeah. yeah. So kind. Of, yeah. Because right. yeah. I've had people really not like that. So right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For what reason? It seems to divide people because it's got a different feel to the other chapters. I think. Yeah. So some people are going to like it, and some yeah, I've had some people you know tell me that it doesn't fit, and uh, you know, and it, it's not as pulpy, is it? But it's no, very, it's very creepy, right? It's oh, very that's, creepy. That's the best thing you can say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 to a Call of Cthulhu yeah. author, if it's creepy, that's like yeah, yeah, it's so uns- unsettling. unsettling. Good. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. saying all the right things to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and have you got any other uh, projects uh, on the pipeline with Chaos? <laughs> Or do you want to make a pitch? Because they might be listening. They're, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a few things in the pipeline. So um, I think there's uh, some work being done. Now, if Mike is listening, he might tell me off for saying the wrong thing. So I'll talk about something I've got you know, up my sleeve that I'm not even sure I've really talked to Mike too much about. So it's a, a campaign. You heard it here first. Yes. <laughs> Breaking news. Uh, it, but it's a campaign for uh, Down Darker Trails. So the... Uh, the, the Hey, good. <laughs> uh, so for the, the kind of uh, Wild West uh, Call of Cthulhu game, because I, I ran a scenario for that again with the Cult Keepers many years ago, where you start as, as children on the Oregon Trail crossing across towards California, and then you kind of jump forward a couple of decades, and, um, and, and, and things have developed. And, and then I've got another bit of cowboy kind of story, well, not cowboy, but Wild West kind of stories, and I thought I could weave those together to make a, perhaps a campaign. Because there, you know, there, there are some really nice campaigns. There's, there's uh, the Stillwater one, but I don't think there's that many other mm. um, 
down dark trails ones as yet. So I'd, I'd like to do that. Because that's another thing I really, you know, enjoy as a kid was like westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I'd like to to develop that. And I found run, there's two things I found running for people is if you give them little kids to play, which I guess you know we, we, there's more games like that now with kids on bikes and uh, the, the, uh, what is it into the loop? What's it called? Yeah. Tales from the Loop. Um, you know, and, and in Call of Cthulhu, I'd sometimes give them, and they're like playing seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, and immediately the players get into that. And the same thing, give them like, you know, they're on horses and they got six <laughs> guns on their hips, and they're immediately into that as well. So people, they're just certain things that if you get the right group, they're just on yeah. board straight away. So yeah. love yeah. that. <laughs> Look forward to that. Um, so Melasta roll the dice. Oh yeah, it's your podcast. Oh. We're friends of Jackson Light. And yes. currently you're working on your, your fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome. Indeed, yeah. That yeah. is uh, close to... I think Matt, just last night, I was looking at the layout that Matt had sent me. He's always pushing the page count a bit more. Can we fit this many pages in? And the printer are like, no, we can fit this many in. And then it starts to you know, burst the staples. So um, we were getting it printed at um, the school because uh, they they do printing and then there's only so many pages they can get in and actually physically be able to staple it but I think we might be doing it at a different printer now but so that is that is coming together and it's something that I've always you know looking at Demon Drawl here it's something I always kind of loved as, as you did mm. you know back in the 80s there was that whole thing of uh, fanzines and Matt being a, a younger gentleman in his you know, mid 30s now but yeah. you know we're talking about you know when was he born 83 I think my word. <laughs> I know. This has shocked much of our audience. <laughs> um, and uh, so he's like, what are fanzines? Yeah. <laughs> so me and Scott, you know, he fishes out some from back in the day that he worked on, and I, I got some out. And Matt's, Matt's very into layout. He's been trained in layout, um, and, uh, and he looks at it, and he's just horrified. <laughs> it was like putting him through torture, having to use Korea font. And, yeah. I mean, and in the early ones, we tried to simulate the old actual cut and paste when cut and paste meant cut physically and glue down. I mean, I never did that, but that's, that's what it meant, right? Um, so we'd, we'd get him to, like, uh, he called it shittification. <laughs> get the, the, the articles and just like add in little accidental lines and put things, you know, a few degrees out of alignment so they're all, you know, a little bit hickledy pickledy. And uh, yeah, and we've kind of dropped that now because it seemed like the joke was was done. Uh, so now it's just, you know, the fanzine. And there's always that temptation to make it a bit more deluxe. Yeah. And I remember one I loved was from the 90s was The Unspeakable Oath and that was of course published in American letter format so it was like Demon Draw that I got here which is an A5 magazine but with the American format it was like that but slightly wider so about maybe an inch wider so I really liked that that wider format I think it was difficult for us to, to do that but then Unspeakable Oath after about 10 issues or so they switched to a full-size format and a glossy cover, and I felt that somehow lost the appeal for me. Yeah, it was a nicer product, if you like, but it wasn't that, you know, handmade feel so much. Yeah. Well, in in the nineties, we weren't playing role-playing games, but we were into science fiction mm. and science. This was the internet before the internet in the nineties. 
producing these. And this is a... Have you seen this before? No, I haven't. The no. Hardcore. Yeah. I want you to take this away because uh, this was uh, published by the Pornography of Science Knowledge Stroke Information. This was when Slipstream... Do you remember Slipstream was a thing in the 90s? Um, about... Uh, and, and this afternoon I'm playing Verve. What is Slipstream? Slipstream is this idea... It, it was before the internet, so... This idea that it was a, a consensual shared space, uh, snow crash and uh, 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 science fiction like this. But have a look who, were, who was responsible for this. Who was uh, responsible? Let me put on my spectacles. There you go. Oh, what? Scott Dawood. There you go. And he, des- he designed Dorwood. that logo. Did he? Yeah, there you go. No, His fancy. name's on that credit list three times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we produced one, uh, uh, and that's for you to take back uh, with you as well, oh, there. Uh, one for you. And, I'm feeling uh, bad I didn't yeah. bring you gifts now. No, sorry, and there's one for Scott. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's one for uh, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm picturing your garage now. Like and the, boxes and boxes. There's one for Lucy as well. Oh. So, didn't sell very well. I've okay. got children as well. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll post them to you. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Okay, thanks for that. Well, thank you very much, uh, Paul, for uh, being our interview, interviewee for this uh, podcast. And thank you very much for inviting me, Dirk. It's yeah, so everybody, in the usual way. Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. Uh, we've hunkered in our bunker. The events of uh, 2019, the very end, have meant that our metropolitan elites like ourselves have gone to ground. Well, Don't mean we've read a book? I think it is. That's what it means. I think we've read more than one book. And so we're back in the room of role-playing rambling to talk about games, to forget about everything Yeah, else. forget about that. Get about the real world. Have a break in our normal chat, mm. which is... Why are people so stupid? Why are people so stupid? And it sounds elitist, but it comes with a toast, doesn't it? <laughs> well, if you're a metropolitan elite, that's, you're going to have that view, aren't you? Yeah. It's not a problem if you have elitist views, because you are one of the elites. Yeah, I self-identify as a, as a least, metropolitan at elite. Not, at least we're not experts, because we've had enough of them. Yeah, anyway, that's enough. Let's focus on gaming. Mm. We're certainly not experts. <laughs> well, we certainly <laughs> are to, not. To prove we are not experts, let's focus on gaming. And uh, well, you, I've, I've invited you into the room of role-playing, like yes. Judge Black. I've, I've, I've given you your judges' strikes back because this is the consulting judge. I want to consult with Do you. Do you? Okay. Because I don't want to talk about a specific game. I want to talk about the mechanics of pulp and what makes something pulpy. But we'll mm. get on to that. Way back in episode two, you said, I just want to be Indiana don't, Jones. Oh, don't, I don't like it when you do this. You throw things back at me that I've said in the past. I just want to be Indiana Jones. Well, yeah, Jones. that's true. Yeah, I think that's still true, isn't it? In a role-playing game, yeah. That's have some fun. Not necessarily Indiana Jones, but that, that kind of character. Like Raiders of Lost Ark came out the same year as Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's an assumption that we could replicate or emulate. Yeah, Indiana yeah there's echoes Jones. of Indiana Jones, wasn't there? As well as still are, aren't there? To some, to some extent, although some people would disagree, I think. 
But that's where pulp comes into it, doesn't yeah. it? Because I'd say that pulp, the pulp Cthulhu, not only adds varying rules, it transforms the game. I, I think you're right. You can certainly think of things that have occurred in our Pulp Cthulhu game, Two-Headed Serpent, that you wouldn't have been able to get away with in the normal Cthulhu rules. And I think it, the, the entire premise of uh, Call of Cthulhu is turned on its head with the Pulp Cthulhu variants, isn't yeah. it? Because the idea of uh, Call of Cthulhu is that you've got depleting resources, haven't you? Depleting sanity resources. You are... The heroes, if you are a hero... Yeah, the yeah, yeah, idea yeah. that you sort of do... You do... Goes, goes out to the window to some extent, because yeah. you're not necessarily doomed. It's a bit more of a you-can-win kind of game. You can defeat things and people. You look at um, Two-Headed Serpents, it, it, it's elements of it, isn't it? So, like, the exotic locations. It is, but I don't know that, you see. That, it's interesting you should say that, isn't it? Because... When we first came out of Deep Freeze, we played Massive Nathletep, didn't yeah. we? And Massive Nathletep has, has all those things in it. As, it has kind of larger... I was thinking about it the other day. It has, it's almost like I prepared for this. Not yeah. normally. It's got larger-than-life villains, hasn't it? Colourful villains, exotic locations. And, and Massive Nathletep has a lot of that anyway, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think what's... I suppose it's difficult for us to analyse is we've always played Cthulhu a bit pulpy, haven't we? Yeah. So there's and a I, bit of overlap. It's hard because some people don't play it like that at all, do they? Yeah. But we always have. So there are elements of pulp. So what does it mean when it gets applied to gaming? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think in terms of literature and film, it's a sort of it's pulp. It's not derogatory, is it? But I suppose it, what it attempts to do, it attempts to excuse it a lot of things that you may think are daft so if you yeah. you know read a pulp story or a pulp tv show that's full of daft death defying death defying things isn't it and people will go oh well it's pulp that that's what it's supposed to be like but in a game i don't know it's it's difficult isn't it to pinpoint pinpoint it is, it is difficult to pinpoint when, when I've looked at the games that have come out that are pulpy, yeah. they tend to come, they like come together in clumps. Yeah. That's a good word, isn't it? Clumps. They come together in clumps. So, <laughs> clumps. Pulp clumps. Pulp clumps. So, <laughs> just to think, 1984, which followed Mercury Spies in Private Eyes, which has got sort of pulp sensibility. The Adventures of uh, Indiana Jones, 1984. Yeah. And you've got. Um, Daredevil, which is the fancy game unlimited, the same thing. What they're doing, though, I think, I, I think in those instances, are trying to use pulp as a genre and create genre elements that are pulp from the serials and books. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying about um, Two-Headed Serpent. Two-Headed Serpent sort of has that kind of weird science... Exotic yeah. locations, yeah. um, strange artifacts, and those those kind of things, and archetypes, doesn't it? From uh, from, yeah. from from those those. Also, is it a genre, or is it when it comes to gaming a style? Mm. Yeah, a style of play. Because it's it, the other thing with, um, I, 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 and that's that's kind of why I've drawn to the mechanics because I think I, I'm tempted to think it is more a style of play. Than, because I think lots of role-playing games have 
elements of pulp in them, don't they? So when you look at the history of pulp, Conan, Conan the Barbarian is considered pulp, mm. isn't it? And Edgar Rice Burroughs is considered pulp. But you would find elements of Conan and Edgar Rice Burroughs in games like, you know, day and day, wouldn't you? you yeah, They're in there. So there's pulp floating around in all role-playing games. But I, I agree with you. I think it's more about the style of play than yeah. anything. And I suppose what Pulp Cthulhu does is try and set up a rule system that facilitates that style of, yeah. of play. I mean, the, the example I always think of is landing the plane in Pulp Cthulhu, where yeah. the pilot's dead, we're on a plane, no one can fly a plane, no one's picked pilot, have they? We've all got 1% in it. I'm going to spend some luck to do the role. And to be honest, even if I'd rolled a, a 33 or even a 43, even a 53, I could have burned a ton of luck to land the plane. And that felt like a very pulpy moment because the system allowed you to do the sort of thing that James Bond or Indiana Jones does, grabs hold of the joystick on a crashing plane and manages somehow to land it. That's a very pulpy thing. And I think, I think it's about, it is about the style of play, whether a rule system facilitates that pulpy thing. I, I think it's more about that than saying that it's about style, because I think pulp is, is in lots of role-playing games. Because I, uh, I, I've come to the uh, conclusion that I am a pulp games master. Yeah, yeah. You know, that... Because the other element, of course, the other thing that's in um, uh, Two-Headed Serpent, which is different than... Um, different than Master Nefertar. So in uh, Master Nefertar, you pitched as investigators, something's happening that you've got to yeah. try and get to the bottom of mm. and work out. That's sort of there in um, Two-Headed Serpent, but what you're doing through Two-Headed Serpent, you're discovering through action, aren't you? Yeah, it's more about going in somewhere, finding something and moving around rather than pondering over. I mean, there are, there are things like letters and stuff in it, but there's it's, less, of, it's less, about that, that, yeah. it's less it, about that. It's not about your uh, ability to look in a library. No, no, no. no. You know, you're going to do better if you can punch somebody in the face yeah. than you are. You, 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 rather than look in the library, better you punch someone in the face and steal the letters from them rather yeah. than find the book in the library. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a better way. Yeah, that's a better way of looking at it, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So in the, the, the second pulp clump that came was in the um, noughties. Yeah. So you get the savage worlds that describes itself as pulp. Yeah. At the end, uh, and then you get Spirit of the Century. Yeah. Which is a, a variation of uh, fudge which is, identifies itself as Pulp, very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, at that time as well, Pulp Cthulhu was being, the idea of it was being put forward. Because mm. if you remember from uh, when Mike Mason appeared on the uh, on the Grog Pod, he was saying that it was a long time in the creation. So it, it, a definite mood comes up, it's come through, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think what, what's different about those ones and those games are unlike the ones that were produced in the 80s, they're trying to create a mechanical element of pulp. Yeah, they are. Trying it, to describe it. Well, yeah, they are. I mean, the Fate's a good example, isn't it? I mean, you, I don't think you could play Fate in a gritty, realistic way. The, the only is not a system for that, is it? Really? No. It is, it is by its very nature a sort of pulpy system of 
doing say outlandish things, but over the top. You know, it allow it would allow over the top exaggerated kind of actions, wouldn't it? Death defying, daredevil sort of stuff. Whereas when you think back in the day, a game like Second Edition RuneQuest just did not allow that, did it? No. You know. Um, in Spirit of the Century, it says that Pulp runs on a few simple principles action, science, and optimism. Mm-hmm. Optimism. Optimism. You think that's a key thing? Could be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose the idea that you can. You can win. You can dodge the bullet, can't you? You can, you know, cra- crash the. You can land the, the plane, even though you've never flown a plane. That's that, isn't it? Whereas, of course, in other games. Other styles of games, there would be lots of face pulling and oh, wow, it's ridiculous, you know. Let's look at mechanics then. Mm. And um, I'm going to put three areas of mechanics for you to talk about here. Okay. Yeah. So the first one is characters have a chance to shine. Yeah. Um, next is dramatic outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the next one is death defying. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So let's start with the first one. Characters have a chance to shine. So how does that manifest itself in pulp well, games? Pulp, pulp, well, Pulp Cthulhu gives you the pulp talents, doesn't it? You know, I think my character's got one called Shadow, which is like you get advantage on hiding. I think Neil's character's got weird science, stuff like that, isn't it? There's a lucky, there's a lucky talent where you get a bit of extra luck, that kind of thing. Make, they make you a bit, I suppose the pulp talents make you a bit tougher, a bit more resilient, a bit tougher. And, and just to let, have you give a little bit of edge on certain things where you think... So my character, Susie's got uh, shadow ability, hasn't she? Which, which, with a good stealth score, makes her... Not invisible, but it gives her the ability to sneak around with a degree of confidence that you wouldn't have in normal Cthulhu because you'd think, I've got to fail a role here. I'm in the middle of all these monsters. But she's got the ability... She, she can fail the role, but she's got enough kind of backup through luck and a talent to give her that sense of I'm good at this yeah I'm good I mean it's a a basic role playing game that's a rare thing isn't it I'm good at this but she's got ability to go I'm good at this Neil's character the weird science it's like oh right well I'm good at this I can look at stuff and work out what it is and be inventive and be resourceful those kind of things give you they give you an edge that might be I suppose slightly unrealistic but that is in keeping with Pulp, isn't it? Yeah. They're also uh, in Pulp Cthulhu based around archetypes, aren't they? So not really classes, but the... Yes, um, yeah. The backgrounds to the characters. Um, <coughs> you can have a mystic, you know, like he's a hypnotist and stuff yeah. like that. Kind yeah, yeah. Of, and all, yeah, Those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you use the word edge when you're describing Pulp talents, because that's what... Uh, Savage World yeah, brings, yeah, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. the characters have edges. So, yeah. is that what makes that pulpit? We're talking about it, but it's a really indefinable thing because D and D Fifth Edition has feats, but I wouldn't, I don't consider D and D pulpit. No, I just don't. But it does all those things. It has, you know, you can in, you, the feats rules in D and D. If you bring those into play um, at the fourth level and eighth level or whatever, you can pick a feat. Mm. But but it doesn't feel pulpit. Yeah. Where Savage Worlds kind of does. Yes. But it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's really difficult. You think you know what it is. But, but at the same time, when you but, ask to define it, it's slippery, isn't it? But does it need the three elements? 
So maybe all three. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe have it. let's have a look at dramatic outcomes. Then. What I mean by dramatic outcomes is that the rules have to facilitate risky manoeuvres. Mm. So, you know, uh, jumping from a train from carriage to carriage. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put with the loop facilitates that with luck, doesn't it? Really? Yeah. So because it allows you to do something that feels risky because you know you've got a pool of luck that you can use to effectively lower your dice roll. Yeah. You know. We're, it's a depleting resource in uh, the 7th edition rules yeah. that you don't recover. Because yeah. you, you, you get it back, don't you? Yeah. Your recovery rolls. That's, yeah. that's the key bit. Which, which can, if, if you depending on how you know, Game Master does it, you, you can be quite generous, can't they? You know? And indeed, they are generous because, isn't it, you, you look, roll your luck at the beginning of each session or each whenever Games Master says. Each, sort of every session or every other yeah. session. And if you fail the roll, you get you get more luck back, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So again, it's encouraging you to, not encouraging you, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if you look low because your chances are you're going to get more back than yeah. someone who makes the luck roll gets slightly less back. Yeah. So that that does facilitate those kind of things, doesn't it? Like I said, jumping from one train to another or one horse to another where you think, oh, the chances, but of course, with luck, you can, you can do it, can't you? Yeah. And um, the way that Savage Worlds does it is through the pennies, isn't it? So if you expend yeah. pennies, yeah. they have a similar function, don't they? Yeah. And going, going back to D&D, Eberron's just been released as a setting for 5th mm. edition. What that does, because that, that describes itself as a pulp setting. Yeah. And it has rules edition, so in the Dungeon Master's Guide at the back, there are hero points. Yeah. yeah. And it encourages you to use hero points in your D&D game. Yeah. To make it pulpy. Pulpy, yeah. But is pulpy pulp? That's the question, isn't it? And <laughs> Can we pulpy, but is that pulp? And that's why I've dragged you into the room of role-playing <laughs> To just to... essentially not answer the question, because I don't think I can. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a new bit, isn't it? That is a new bit that I quite like. Yeah. Of games that we've discovered since we've yeah. come back to, to playing. That opportunity to... Because I love those moments. Because that's why I describe yeah. myself as a, a, a... You know, I love action in my games and I love characters who do things that are spectacular yeah. Yeah. rather than realistic. And Pulp, Pulp Cthulhu encourages that perhaps more than any game because the look mechanism gives you a... So it's not just like a re-roll, is it? No. It's not saying, I'm going to try and land the plane, but I'll get a re-roll. What it's saying is, you can roll and then... Burn luck, so you can you can guarantee you'll do it within within reason. Obviously, you need the luck, and if you get a really really high roll and your skills really low, then it might not be an option. But to some extent, you could. You know, when my character was landing the, the plane, there was a part of me thought, yeah, I can. I think I can do this as long as I don't roll really really high. I can do it, and that's different. That's more pulpy than a Benny or a re-roll, isn't it? Yeah. Because it guarantees certain action. As, as a player, you can move through the game and go, you know, I'm going to try something dangerous and risky and a little bit spectacular because I've got quite a lot of luck here and I think even with a, an average role, I can do it. Yeah. So it encourages that kind of behaviour, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it encourages spectacular and dangerous and dramatic behaviour because the luck pool gives you a kind of safety net of sorts that I can get away with it. 
Yeah. It will run out, but can get away with it. And that comes on to the third element, which is death defining. Yeah. So death this comes defining. back, this comes yeah. back to the optimism mm. that we can pull through this. Yeah. And I suppose one of the first uh, uh, death defying uh, mechanics that we saw were in um, Top Secret, but probably more in Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, the mega. Mega death look saving role. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know when when the when you're being shot at by um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the mooks with the machine yeah. guns that you can dodge them by and that rolling. and that to me does feel what one of the defining things of pulp that yeah. death defined thing. So in um, in pulp Cthulhu, as long as you reserve, you've got to spend all your luck to yeah, all your death. luck. But if you've got the least thirty and all your luck, you can defy death. And yeah. that's what makes it very different from normal Cthulhu. So in normal Cthulhu, at the end of an adventure, if you think, oh, I need to kill the big tentacle monster and I've got to stick a dynamite and I'm going to blow myself up with the monster. That's a kind of end of Cthulhu game, isn't it? Yeah. But in Pope Cthulhu, you can do that and actually somehow survive. <laughs> crawl from the crawl from the Yeah, crawl from the rubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And in a way, that, that feels the most perhaps clearly defining thing about a pulp game. The ability to defy death in some way. Because some some games, yes, you, you can defy death with lucky rolls, but they don't give you a mechanism for defying death. Do they? Yeah, no. If that makes sense. You know, like RuneQuest, yeah, you can defy death by having lucky rolls and you think you're going to die and suddenly the bad guy rolls a, a fumble and you roll a critical and all that. But that's not inherent in the mechanics, is it? No. Whereas in Pulp Cthulhu, there's an inherent element to it that says, if you've got 30 log and you burn it all, somehow you'll survive this spectacular explosion. Or this, you know, and a lot of games don't have that, do they? Again, going back to D&D, that's pulpy elements, you could say, but it doesn't really have anything like that, does it? No. I think uh, if Neil was here, and he's not here, but if he was here, I didn't invite him to the room of role <laughs> no, players. Not in a room. So Neil, the old scouser role player, who mm. uh, believes in character death. I mean, he's an advocate of death. He, he is. He's got a special stamp made, doesn't he? I know, yeah. Is that yeah. his special stamp at Grogmate? I think I think uh, it's part of the DCC crowd. It's a <laughs> special, a special stamp. And the bloody funnel. Dead. Yeah, they just... <laughs> yeah. They, they love killing characters because yeah. there's no authenticity in yeah. the survival. And several times, yeah. he has said during the Two-Headed Serpent campaign, mm. uh, it's not quite the same as Cthulhu, is it? It's not, you know, you feel like you're going to survive, I'm going to get through this. Yeah. So obviously he's been the magnet for everything. I've thrown everything at him. Put that to the test. Let's yeah. see if he survives. Well, he's got, he's got a point, I suppose, and... If, if all role-playing games were like that, it might get a bit tedious. There's, there's, there's a lot to, there's said to a balance, isn't there? It's good to play a game that is a bit dangerous, where yeah. you think, ooh, I'm, you know, I am under in real jeopardy here. That's it, that's his problem with 5th um, edition D&D, isn't it? That you get, yeah, a lot of people have said that. There, that, that thing of, you know, the, there's so many safety nets in it that it doesn't feel as dangerous as the old D&D. You know? And I, that's, that's true. But there's there's balance in that sometimes it's good to play a game where, you know, your characters aren't dying like flies, you know. But but equally, if all games were like that, it might become Does it remove So you play we played Two Headed Serpent for all this period of time. You know that you've got yeah. characters that have got talents. Yeah. 
and they've got a chance to shine. Yeah. yeah. You know that they've got look to burn mm. and you can push roles as well, can't yeah, you? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can use uh, your Cthulhu Mythos uh, skill to do wonderful things. You've got more available yeah. to you. Yeah. Uh, in, in so, so there's that element. You've got the ability to defy death. So does that mean that it removes jeopardy? Are you just take going along for the ride? I don't think it totally removes jeopardy because we, we've seen with uh, Mark's character, um, he became a bit of a cropper, burnt quite a lot of luck, and it got to a point, I think in the last session, where he was thinking, blimey, you know, I'm, I'm really running out of resources here, you know, and, and I could be in trouble. So it's not necessarily the case. But that said, I, I suppose it's the thing of, if you, if you go into something full strength, you've got a degree of confidence that you can survive it. But over time, you've still got that problem of being depleted and I've run out of luck. It's like that, isn't it? Defy death by burning all your luck. Okay, next, next game session you'll get, what, 2D10 plus 10 luck back. That's not a lot of luck, is it? And then if you have to burn some of that in the next game, you know. Yeah. So it does have a sense of jeopardy. But it's, it's true, it doesn't have as much jeopardy as regular Cthulhu or other games. But that said, there's a lot of fun to be had, isn't there? In, again, I don't do spoilers for Two-Headed Serpent, but we've had fun fighting big stuff. Yeah. And what you have to say is, in a regular Cthulhu game, you wouldn't be able to fight that big stuff. Those no. big, the big monsters, you wouldn't be able to fight big monsters, would you? In normal Cthulhu. And there's something to be said for having to run away and think tactically because you can't beat them. But there's also a lot to be said for having fun fighting big monsters yeah. because that can be fun as well. So it's, it's a balance, isn't it? One, one thing, I don't think one thing, I don't think one style outweighs the other. No. They're equally valid and both would get boring. Yeah. So it's a bit like Grogmeat when we played Mothership. That was fun because people were being killed. Yeah. But if you were playing that every week, week in, week out, you go, it could be a bit irritating, wouldn't it, yeah. getting killed all the time? Because it was back in the day, wasn't it? I mean, back yeah. in the day, RuneQuest was brutal. I remember going through you know, character every week. Yeah. And, and it does get a bit tedious. But equally, it would get tedious if yeah. there was no jeopardy. Because we've got elements that have come from, I suppose people use that traditional and indie um, as a separate, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. What I was starting to think is, is this where traditional and independent indie games come together mm, in yeah. pulp? That's where they can be found. So you've still got like the um, crunchy elements like that. So Savage World is a good example of this. You've still got enough crunch, haven't you, there? Yeah. Uh, to, to, so it's not entirely based on um, story elements. No, no, it, it's still got dice and a target number and yeah. success or failure. Yeah, it's yeah, kind exactly. of familiar in many respects, yeah. But it's also got the other things that safeguard and give you um, the ability to do things that you wouldn't be able to do in those more traditional yeah. games. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's pulp the crossroads where traditional and indie games meet could be yeah although then we'd have to define traditional indie we've struggled to define pulp haven't we I know yeah so 
<laughs> don't, don't go down that road. It's been really hard work, hasn't it, this? It is hard work. It's odd, isn't it? Because people bander it around all the time. Oh, it's very pulpy. Oh, yeah, I like a pulpy style. Oh, what are you talking about? Yeah. What is and it? you have a vague idea in your head, but when you actually try and pin it down, it's... Oh, I don't know. don't quite know what that means. Because, as I said, you could say... You could look at Pulp Cthulhu and think, yeah, Pulp Cthulhu is, you know, firing machine guns at monsters and smacking the athletes up in the face and dodging bullets. But then you can look at other role-playing games and think, well, they do all that kind of stuff, don't they? Yeah. But they don't feel pulpy. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it is difficult. And, and what's good in the beginning of um, uh, Pulp Cthulhu is that you get a pulp meter where you can have degrees of pulp. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you can be a particular... Because it gives you some additional hit points as well as your luck mm. and uh, yeah. ability to die, uh, defy death. But you can crank that up depending yeah. on what level of pulp. Well, that in itself is interesting, isn't it? Because that suggests the game's definition of pulp is very, is very much that death-defying thing isn't it yeah because that, if that's what the pulpometer does makes you tougher and, and more durable and more then, and have more talents more talent then obviously pulp for, for them in that context is all about having talents and toughness and being able to defy death on a grander scale the more pulpy it is yeah so maybe they've done the job for us yeah we needn't have bothered with this discussion why have you wasted my time drag me in here for you should have just showed me the pulpometer. <laughs> so I think we should just get back on safer ground. Yeah. Why are people so stupid? Why are people so stupid? <laughs> Very elitist of you. Thanks to Lee for his contribution and to Paul for being our guest at Grogmeet. The good friends of Jackson Elias came top of the talk podcast poll in EN World in 2018 and entered the Hall of Fame. I'm pleased to say that we'll be joining them with our hobnobs under our arm and a four-pack of Elvis juice as we won the poll in 2019. Thank you very much to Steve Rumney and Dave Patterson for nominating us and saying great things about the podcast and the community that's built up around it. It means a lot. Thanks too to the Grog Squad who mobilised to action and voted for us. I'm so happy. Uh, the last time I won anything was the Nuttall Prize for Reading in 1983 at school. I know it's only a bit of fun, but let's face it, it's the only 2019 poll that matters. Thanks to you all. Look out on the grognardfiles.com for a feature on Demon Droll, the fanzine that first published Paul's work. Look out there too for some of the details of our latest projects. Next month marks four years since we began the Patreon campaign. So to celebrate, there'll be some goodies dropped in the Grog Locker, our private space on the internet for Patreons only. We are very grateful if you can support the podcast by chucking us a tip in the beret, liking and subscribing, writing a review and generally contributing. It feels good to know that listening to this rubbish actually inspired people to come back to the hobby and that you enjoy listening to it. It encourages us to continue. Next time, after popular demand, I'm looking at you, Per, we'll be off to Middle Earth. And they said it would never happen. We'll be thanking new patrons with a hit from the Merp Crit Tables.
Until then, adios, amigos.